So the title of this talk is the same as the title of this retreat. Through Dharma eyes. Seeing the world, seeing our life through the eyes of the Dharma, through the understanding of the Dharma. And we chose that title because the understanding that the Buddha realized is that we suffer because we don't understand our experience correctly. If we practice the Dharma and we come to a skillful or the skillful way of understanding our experience, we stop suffering. Now there are many reasons that we don't understand our experience correctly. And that is the task of Dharma practices to expose and to overcome those uh, impediments, those obstacles. Our teacher, Saito Utejaniya, says that a yogi has three jobs. So all you have to do on this retreat is these three jobs. Now, I know you have your staff, you know, the staff has jobs for you. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the work to begin to see through Dharma eyes, to begin to see the way things are so that we understand correctly and minimize and eventually, hopefully, stop suffering. And the first of these tasks of each one of us as a yogi is to hear and to understand and to apply what is called right view. Now, right view is the way of understanding that the Buddha realized. But we're not yet Buddhas, we haven't practiced, but still we can hear what the Buddha said. We can read it, we can hear it, we can hear it explained. And so it lays down in our mind a map, a template of a way of seeing, a way of understanding our experience. And even though that isn't our direct and immediate experience yet, or at this time, it does serve as a, a view, a way, a possibility that through practice we can realize. With that right view as a foundation, the second task of a yogi is to establish awareness, which is primarily what we've been trying to do today, trying to be aware trying to remember to recognize what's happening in each moment. Now, as Carol demonstrated last night and this morning, if I ask you to feel the sensations in your right hand, it's not difficult to do. Or if I ask you to notice 
and be aware that you're seeing, that's not difficult to do. What's difficult to do is to remember, to notice, and to recognize what is being known, moment by moment. And we can see, as you have all discovered today, amply, many times over, what it is that keeps us from remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. And what is that? We get entangled and lost in the stream of thoughts, the narrative of our personal life that is often divorced from what we're actually experiencing. You know, we're lost in this chatter of the mind about something in the past, something we imagine in the future, some fantasy, and we're not aware of what's going on. We're not remembering to recognize that that's what's happening, that fantasizing is happening, that remembering is happening, that planning is happening. And so this narrative that we get entangled in is actually a big impediment to actually being present and seeing our life through Dharma eyes. So with right view, we can begin to understand, oh, this is what's going on. And when we, and as we cultivate awareness, we can begin to see this activity of mind, how we get lost, how we get pulled away from right view, how we get entangled in suffering, the stories of our minds that are the essence of suffering. And the third task of a yogi is once having established right view and practicing awareness of recognizing moment after moment what's going on, then to learn how to sustain it, how to sustain the awareness with whatever experience arises. That's it. Hear right view, understand it, apply it to developing awareness and sustain the awareness moment by moment as best you can. That's it. If you're doing anything but that, you might ask yourself, why? I want to speak tonight about, primarily about this first task because it's important for us to understand what Dharma practice is all about, why we're practicing, what is meditation anyway? Why do we practice meditation? How do we practice meditation? What's the purpose of it? Because if we come to a task like meditation with the wrong understanding of how to do it, why to do it, its benefits, how can we expect to really practice effectively, efficiently? How are we going to know if we're doing it right? Or if we're getting any benefit or the benefit that's promised, if we don't know. When the Buddha realized the way things are, the truth, the Dharma, in his first discourse to the five ascetics that he had practiced with prior to his realization, he spoke about the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are briefly that there's 
there's difficulty in life. There's some suffering, there's some pain. First noble truth. The second noble truth is it's caused by craving, holding on, uh, attachment. Third noble truth is that that craving and holding on can come to an end. And if it does and when it does, suffering itself comes to an end. And the path, the fourth noble truth, is the path that to be developed in order to realize the end of dukkha. That path, Noble Eightfold Path, is essentially three trainings. There's a training in morality or purifying our speech and behavior as we are doing here by practicing the precepts. And the precepts, practicing the precepts is really being mindful of our intention before we speak and act and when we recognize that there's some unwholesomeness in the mind when we're about to speak or about to act, then exercising some restraint. And when we can exercise that restraint and not stick our foot in our mouth and not stick our hands or other parts of our body where they're not supposed to be, we can live in harmony with one another because we're not hurting each other. We're not careless about our relationship with each other. We're mindfully aware of how we're relating to each other. So it's a mindfulness practice, keeping the precepts or living, trying to train in the precepts is a mindfulness practice. But even if we can be careful of how we speak and how we act, as you may have noticed today, the mind can still drive you crazy. You know, the mind just, even if you're not saying it, the mind knows what it wants to say. And even if you're not doing it, the mind seems to have a pretty clear understanding of what it wants to do. And the mind can get pretty obsessed with unskillful, potentially harmful um, thoughts. And so a more powerful and yet a more subtle uh, training is required to, to get a handle on that level of suffering, and that is the development of mindfulness, moment-to-moment -moment mindful awareness. Because to the extent that we can, moment by moment, be aware of what is going on, the mind will gradually calm down. And even if what we are aware of is unwholesome, unskillful. We're not acting it out and we're not proliferating that kind of suffering in the mind. We're seeing it, letting go of it in each moment that we're aware of it. And this kind of training, development of a momentum of mindful awareness, frees the mind or purifies the mind of what are called the obsessive defilements, the obsessing in the mind. Now, if you've noticed any obsessing in your mind today, you know what a relief it would be to not obsess. Purification of mind is the end of obsessing. But still, conditions change, things happen, can't always be in 
continuous mindful awareness. And so the Buddha recognized that a third training is necessary to address the most subtle forms of suffering in the mind, in the heart, and that is through the development of insight. Insight is uh, a very refined understanding of the way things are, the way things are in your own life, in your own heart, your own mind, your own body, and really that kind of insight, that kind of knowledge, that wise knowledge can only be accessed through continuous awareness. While I might be able to describe to you some understanding I have arrived at through my practice, when you hear it, it's just knowledge for you. It's not your own self-realized understanding. And while that knowledge may be useful, may be helpful, it doesn't have the impact, doesn't have the power that realizing it for yourself does in really uprooting, pulling these uh, wrong views, these wrong understandings out of your mind. This purification of our understanding, you know, the first sila is purifying our speech and behavior. Mindfulness purifies our mind. But insight purifies our understanding. And the purification of understanding occurs with two elements. The first element is right view, having the right understanding. And the second element of purified understanding is having right thought or skillful thoughts. So this right, skillful understanding and view of things is an essential piece of the Buddha's path to be developed for each one of us to realize the end of suffering. It's pretty clear that the quality of our mind in each moment has a lot to do with how we experience the present moment. Everyone, every one of us is experiencing and has ever only experienced six things, as the Buddha identified in one of his shortest discourses. All we've ever known are seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. That's it. And so whatever suffering you haven't enjoyed in your life is through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. And whatever joy, bliss, liberation, uh, exquisite, subtle, pleasant, heavenly, divine, whatever it is that you've experienced is again through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thinking. That's it. So really, we don't have that much to do. We just have to see when we're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thinking. And if we can be continuously, mindfully aware of that, we got it in the bag. But meditation is about using our experience 
to develop wholesome qualities of mind. Everyone experiences sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, but not everyone is practicing meditation. And some of us at times use what we see, what we hear, what we smell, taste, touch, to develop unskillful, unwholesome, painful, harmful, hurtful experiences for ourselves and others. Meditation is using sense objects to develop awareness that stabilize the mind and reveal understanding and realization of the end of suffering. So knowledge of the right view is really important. So we ask the questions, well, what is meditation? How do I meditate? What's the Dharma anyway? And what is this liberation or the end of suffering that is spoken about in the Buddhist teachings? We develop wisdom relying on information. Many of you have read books, listened to Dharma talks, and listening to this talk, listening to instructions, discussing with others, have acquired a vast library of information. But we need to think about that. We need to use our intelligence to think about what we've heard to understand, to try to uh, suss it out for ourselves. Is what we've heard realistic? Is it reasonable? Is it even resonate with our experience? Or is it just la-la? And then if we use the information that we've heard and we apply it intelligently with awareness to our experience, we may and can de develop insight. The insight that we're most interested in in our practice here is really understanding the first noble truth. What is suffering? What is painful experience? What is this dukkha that is so painful? Because we live in illusion. We live in delusion. We're just not aware of uh, some of the suffering that we're enduring. We've taken it for granted for so long or we've been kind of under its thumb for so long, we think that this is the way it's supposed to be. When I was practicing in Burma with one of my teachers, he understood the mind better than I did. And he knew that there was suffering in the mind that I had not yet seen. So rather than let me comfortably cruise along with my deluded mistaken beliefs or assumptions that I wasn't suffering, he encouraged me to practice in such a way that I would discover for myself suffering that I hadn't yet known. Because once we see that we're suffering, we'll try to do something to relieve it, to be free of it. If we don't know we're suffering, we won't. And so a lot of practice is just paying attention to our experience with the right view so that we begin to see, you know, this is not satisfactory. This experience, these feelings, these thoughts, they're just not 
they don't bring a level of stability and satisfaction and ease in our life. They just complicate our life, making life more difficult, more painful. When we speak about right view, when Sariputta, the second in wisdom to the Buddha, was asked, how do we, if right view is so important, if understanding things correctly is so important in our practice, how do we establish right view in our own heart, in our own mind? And he said, there are two elements to correctly understanding your experience. The first is you have to hear it from someone else first. And secondly, you have to apply it with wise attention to your experience in order to see it and confirm it for yourself. Now that first one is a little bit of a stumbling block because we live in the West. We all have pretty good education. We're all pretty smart. We're not, we're not idiots. We're not naive. We're not stupid. We know. We should be able to figure it out for ourselves, right? You know what? If we could figure it out for ourselves, we would have done that a long time ago. And we haven't succeeded yet. So the Buddha said, well, here's what, I, here's, here's what I've seen. And if we can hear that, maybe we'll begin to see it through our own practice. All Dharma practices, all Dharma practices, whether it's chanting, taking the refuges and precepts, developing any of the paramis like generosity, loving kindness, equanimity, renunciation, practicing determination or resolve of mind, any Dharma practice has as its purpose to develop wholesome qualities of mind. Patience, understanding, awareness, while at the same time suppressing or eradicating, eventually, the unwholesome qualities of mind. Whatever Dharma practice you do. And this is an important understanding because sometimes the habits of our mind are so persistent and so strong and so much a part of our personality that we think they're intractable, that they're there for good. They're part of us and can't be changed. But they can. The mind is malleable. The mind is changeable. I don't mean just that the mind changes its thoughts, feelings, moods. I mean we can actually change the habits of the mind. And so it's important to understand that, you know, as, as bad as it is sometimes when you look at your mind, when you see the mind, the activity of the mind, the habits of the mind, the obsessing of the mind, that that's just what we've grown accustomed to. It doesn't have to be that way. But as you know, even though the mind is malleable, is trainable, we can't control it all the time. As our teacher Sayadaw Tejaniya says, the mind is not yours but you're responsible for it. 
Because what comes into the mind and what the mind does is often out of your immediate control. All kinds of things come into the mind. Haven't you noticed? And yet when they do, we're responsible for handling them. How are we going to respond to this? How are we going to react to this? And if we're not careful, we'll make a mess of it. We'll, we'll make trouble for ourselves. And so while the mind is not ours to control, we're responsible for responsible for it so that it doesn't get out of hand. Meditation is the work of the mind, as Carol mentioned last night. It's the work of the mind, what it takes to develop wholesome qualities, more wholesome qualities, stronger wholesome qualities. Therefore, when we do our practice, when we're doing our meditation, we have to do it with a wholesome mind. We can't do it with an angry mind that wants to get rid of this and, and get a hold of that. We can't do it with a mind that is striving to achieve some imagined experience that we've read about or heard about or imagined. Because if, we're, if we are practicing with an unskillful mind, how are we going to cultivate and generate wholesome qualities of mind? And so all of our practice, and this is an important takeaway from this talk, we need to monitor our attitude in practice. Really look, ask yourself frequently in practice, what's the attitude of mind in my practice? What attitude of mind am I practicing with? Are we trying to get something, trying to get rid of something? Are we trying to create something? Are we trying to fix it, explain it, figure it out? Do we have a project in, in, in mind for this retreat? All of those attitudes of mind are not that skillful. Meditation practice is the awareness of each moment. It's remembering to recognize each moment experience because it matters what we do with our time. And our time is our mind. It matters what we do with our mind. The field of meditation practice, when you come here to practice, is really your body and your mind. Whatever it is that you experience in your body and your mind. It's not what you've read in the books and whether it's right or wrong, or you agree, it, agree with it or disagree with it. It's not really what you observe in others. It's what you experience of your own body and your own mind. This is the field, the area, the arena of our awareness. And yet, the experience themselves are not the object. They're not the task. That's not the, the kind of experience you have in meditation is not what it's about. It's about the fact of, and knowing that you're aware. As Carol mentioned this morning, whatever you experience, it's okay. Anything is okay. What's important is, is there an awareness of it? Are you aware that that's what's being experienced? Are you aware that that's what's happening as it happens? So the first, or one of the most skillful, um, right understanding, 
skillful understandings in our practice is that everything that occurs in the body, in the mind, whatever you experience in the body and mind is natural. It's normal. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. It not, shouldn't be happening. It has arisen due to causes and conditions which you may or may not understand, but it's not a mistake. And so if we understand that about our excruciating back pain, our obsessing mind, our you know, frustration, disappointment, depression, angst, whatever it is, it's all natural. It's not a mistake. You're not doing something wrong. We may not understand correctly, but just because we're aware of very difficult, very painful, very unpleasant experiences, doesn't mean that we're practicing incorrectly. These things arise due to causes and conditions. Practice is to see what's happening as it occurs. So we could say that Dharma practice is really the study of nature. The nature of this body, the nature of the mind, the natural activity of the, of the mind, what the mind does quite naturally. So it's important, it's really important in practice to, to understand that all that your mind does in practice is a naturally occurring process of the mind. It's not about you. It's not about your particular anything. It arises as it does, it's ex you experience it as you do, because it is a naturally occurring result of causes and conditions, which we don't understand. And so we think, one of, the, one of the wrong understandings, one of the unskillful understandings is to think that what's happening in the body is happening to me. What's happening in the mind is happening to me. It's all about my body, my mind, my fear, my sorrow, my anger, my, anger, my depression. It's not. Those things arise due to causes and conditions, which, if you had your choice, you probably would choose not to experience. Right? Good luck. You know, I don't want to be depressed. I don't want to be fearful. I don't want to be anxious, fretful, stressed, restless. I don't even want to be sleepy. You can tell that. You can tell your mind that all you want. But it's still going to do what it does, isn't it? It's pretty clear that the mind really has a mind of its own. You know, and we have to work with it as best we can and not get too kind of uh, entangled with it, thinking that it's really ours. Second, or another uh, understanding that's important in practice, is to understand that in every moment, something is being known. In every moment, the mind is knowing something. And actually, this is a good, uh, something to remember when you're practicing. Because if you get entangled, you get all caught up, you get frustrated, you get lost, you get confused, you don't know what you're supposed to be doing, you can just stop for a minute. Put aside all your techniquing. And just ask yourself, okay, 
If something is being known in every moment, what's being known in this moment? That's it. That's, that's as far as you need to look to ask yourself, remind yourself that something is being known in every moment and then to ask yourself what is being known in this moment. And if you can get a glimpse of even a sensation in the body, a mood in the mind, a thought, an experience in the environment of hearing or smelling or feeling temperature, that's it. And I might just take this opportunity to say that a lot of what we experience every day is so ordinary and so mundane and so unspecial that we don't bother to pay attention to it. But really, if we miss it, then we're not aware. And so when something important happens, which we hope is soon, we don't have the strength of mind to see it. We don't have the practice of seeing and recognizing the moment, and so we miss it. So we cultivate and train in the most ordinary, the most mundane, the most familiar of experiences. Breathing, moving the limbs, stepping and walking. How ordinary is that? And yet we do it all the time. And because we do and we don't pay attention, our mind is not that strong. Our mindfulness is pretty scattered. And so it is really skillful use of your time here to pay attention to the most ordinary, the most mundane, the most repetitive or recurring experiences because that's where the mind gets strengthened in the continuity of the awareness. In every moment, something's being known. There's the object and the knowing. The object is going to change moment by moment. There's an in-breath, followed by an out-breath, followed by a sound, by a sensation, by a thought, a feeling, a mood, a memory, a plan, endlessly. It just goes on and on and on. It's just like, like life unwinds. Where it goes, what it takes as its object, not so important. What's important is the awareness of it. Cultivating the continuity of the awareness so that the awareness becomes stronger and anything that arises can be known, can be recognized. When we speak of objects in meditation, as Carol mentioned this morning, I think, objects in meditation are anything that can be known. Certainly, sensations in the body, pretty noticeable, pretty distinctive. They occur in a place at a time and they have a pretty strong impact on the mind. Thoughts, well, they're elusive, they're subtle, they're pretty diffuse, but still they're pretty noticeable. Moods of the mind, they're less formed than thoughts, but they can be pretty noticeable. Emotions are certainly noticeable. But there are subtler behaviors of mind or misbehaviors of mind that we also want to learn to pay attention to. Assumptions, beliefs, 
And we get a glimpse of them just as we just pay attention. And you can begin to see how the story is being formed in your mind or what, how you weave every experience into the narrative of your life. Notice these thoughts. Notice these beliefs. Notice these assumptions. Because how we think about our experience is important. So we want to observe, we want to learn to observe our experience, not in order to get rid of it. Now, I know a lot of what occurs we don't prefer. You know, it's, unple it's unpleasant, it's painful, it's scary, it's depressing, it's frustrating. And so we'd rather not pay attention to it. But these experiences are the very place to establish awareness, to be mindfully aware of whatever is arising, whatever object is being known. Because in that observation, we can begin to understand our experience more correctly, more honestly, with more integrity. And it is through observation that we can begin to gather the data to understand things wisely, skillfully. You know, there's around here, there, uh, we notice a lot of turkeys and sometimes deer. I haven't noticed the deer yet, but I'm sure they're around. If you wanted to understand about the nature of a deer, how, could, how would you do that? Well, you could go to your computer and Google life of deer, and you'd come up with something, probably a lot, of what other people have observed or know about the nature of deer, or the lifestyle or the life cycle of a deer. But if you really wanted to know for yourself, all you have to do is observe. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to try to figure it out. Just watch a deer. Just, just walk around, trail a deer for a day. Watch what it does, how its ears move, how its tails move, where it looks, when it looks, how it relates to the wind, to other deer, to people, to sounds, to the wind. Just, just pay attention. And through that observation, without even trying to figure it out, you will gather enough information to really understand the nature of deer, right? Not because you went to an authority, not because you figured it out by thinking, but because you just observed carefully. And through that observation, you understood, oh, this is the way it is for deer. Our minds are just like that. Consider your mind a deer. It's kind of skittish, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's paying attention to things. So you're just going to watch your mind all day. You're not trying to figure it out. You're not sitting in judgment of it. It's doing something good. It's doing something bad. It shouldn't be doing this. It should be doing something else. You're just observing. If you observe your mind all day, you'll begin to understand its nature. You may not like what you see. Well, that's the way it is. And eventually, if you watch your mind long enough, you watch your body, you watch your mind, you watch how they relate to each other. Long enough, you'll gather the knowledge of how it really is. And this knowledge is liberating. Because if once we understand things correctly, we stop making trouble for ourselves. So we want to monitor 
the energy with which we are observing our experience. If we're observing our experience in order to get rid of it, you can get rid of it. You want to get rid of experience? You want to get rid of pain in the body? Stand up. Yeah, it'll disappear. Or take some pain medications. But what do you understand? Nothing. So we observe in order to understand, not to just get rid of. If you don't like what your mind's doing, you can always just go entertain it or distract it with something else. Go down to the dining room, have a cup of tea. You know, go out for a walk and look at the different kind of flowers along the way. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to get away from what is unpleasant. What's hard is to learn the nature of unpleasantness, to learn about it, to learn about why our mind is so unhappy. In practice, we need to apply this understanding that everything that occurs is a natural occurrence. It arises due to causes and conditions. And while we may not know the causes and conditions, by observing continuously the way things unfold in our mind, we will begin to understand the causes and conditions. We'll begin to understand why and how we get bored why and how we get caught by frustration or depression or fear or joy how we get caught in joy how we get caught in bliss just in case you're there yet because you've seen that or just know that when you do experience joy and bliss don't get caught there we want to observe it in order to understand it it is this observation that leads to knowledge and the knowledge leads to understanding. When we bring a willing attitude to the mind in order to observe and learn, then we'll see that we don't make it happen, we don't control it, we're not trying to get rid of it. Things occur due to their own terms. We observe in order to understand what those terms are, what those causes and conditions are. You know, when we observe the weather, for example, if you, if you just pay attention to the weather here over the next six days, as you will, <laughs> you'll be paying some kind of attention to it, you'll begin to understand how it is that clouds form, when the sun is present, when it's cool, when it's windy. And if you continued observing like that over the course of seasons or years, you would acquire a vast knowledge of the weather patterns of this location. And if you took it over a wider location, you could really understand a lot about the way the weather works. Now, you can't control the weather. You can't make it happen the way you want it to. You can't prevent it from happening. But with the knowledge of what you have observed, you can position yourself and act in such a way as to minimize the conditions that are going to cause harm and to maximize the conditions that bring pleasantness. So just by observing the way the weather works, you can minimize, or farmers can minimize, the effects of drought or the anticipate floods, even though they can't control it. They can't change the weather. Well, the same thing happens in our mind. By learning through observation, the way the mind works. We can't control the mind, 
but we can be knowledgeable enough to avoid making things worse, take advantage of when things are going well, capitalize on the wholesome, minimize the unwholesome, and actually be live a, live a better life with more happiness, more stability of our mind. There's a, um, where I live on Maui, uh, I'm at 2,000 feet, or we live at 2,000 feet, and we're looking across Maui to, uh, from one mountain over to the other mountains, the West Maui Mountains. And if you, just, if you just look over there at the West Maui Mountains, it looks like there are these clouds that are blowing in from the right-hand side, which is the north, or the west, or the east, and blowing across the mountains. <laughs> Wait a minute, did I get them all? <laughs> south, no, right. Well, when you look at it, it's the right, it looks like it's the north, but it's actually the east. Okay. So it looks like these clouds are coming from the east, blowing across the mountains, and blowing out over the ocean to the west. But actually, no such thing is happening. There aren't clouds coming from anywhere, there aren't clouds moving anywhere, and there aren't clouds going anywhere. It is just a phenomena of the air, full of water, running into the mountains and appearing as clouds. The clouds don't go anywhere, they just stay right there and yet they change constantly because the, the wind is moving. But when you look at it, you think there's something actually happening there. But in fact, there's no such thing happening. It's just an illusion due to not paying careful enough attention. Our life is like that. Things happen and we get upset, we get frustrated, we get disappointed, and we think it's all about me. But actually when we pay very close attention, we'll see that the things that happen are just impersonal conditions that arise due to their own causes, their own terms. And if we don't grab onto them and think that they're all about me, they go away. We're not entangled in them. We're not kind of jerked around by them. Whatever you have ever experienced in the past, whatever, no matter how much sorrow, how much frustration, how much depression, how much fear you've ever experienced in the past, where is it now? It's gone. Your mind is still quite present, fully capable of experiencing the next moment, hasn't been damaged one bit by all that you've experienced. Or you might imagine all the happiness, all the joy, all the bliss, all the most exquisite, delightful, sensual pleasures that you've experienced and how wonderful that was. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying, where is it now? Can you hang on to it? Has it changed your mind substantially in any way? So why do we fear unpleasantness? Why do we so earnestly seek pleasantness? We've tasted it all already. Many times, thousands of times. What we're doing here is trying to understand what we're doing here. 
Why are we doing this? Why are we craving and making ourselves miserable? Why are we looking for what we've already had and tasted? What are we searching for? Practice is to observe in order to learn and to understand. When we understand correctly the way things are, how it is that we're entangled in this endless pursuit, when we understand that correctly, we'll stop suffering. I didn't say you'll stop experiencing pleasantness or unpleasantness. We'll just stop suffering in relationship to it. And that's the goal of practice. That's the movement of practice. Away from or suppressing or getting uh, disentangled from unwholesome states of mind and cultivating and and being able to enjoy uh, enduring wholesome states of mind. This right view that I've been speaking about is the first task of a yogi. I just want to mention the next two tasks that we'll spend more time with uh, in the coming days. With this right view, or with these right views in practice, the second task is to establish awareness, mindful awareness, which is nothing more but nothing less than Remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. And the hard part is the remembering to do that. The recognizing it is easy. But because we don't have a habit of remembering to recognize our experience, we forget. And we drift off into these long trains of thought the narrative of our life in the past, in the future, how we want it to be, how we hope it'll be, how it was, and we're not here. We're not present for and recognizing the way our life actually is. And the challenge that we all face is how to establish this awareness with some continuity. Because continuity is the key in all that we do here. So even though it looks like, you know, between 9.15 and 12.15 in the morning, you have this open, endless period of just kind of like wandering around, waiting for lunch. (laughs) There's some laugh of recognition there. (laughs) Uh, There's no free time. There's no recess in practice. You know, we could, we could have made the, the, the schedule a lot simpler. Wake up, practice, fall asleep. <laughs> you know, and whenever you wake up, begin practice. And whenever you can't practice anymore, you'll fall asleep. In the midst of that, you're going to do a couple of meals and go to the toilet a few times. And you're going to walk and you're going to do your movement with Franz. And you're going to do this, that, and the other thing. But it's all practice all the practice of remembering to recognize the present moment's experience, whatever you're doing. Sitting, walking, talking, doing your yogi job, 
coming into the hall, getting up, leaving the hall, everything. And as I mentioned, so much of what we do in the day is so ordinary and so mundane and so familiar and so repetitive, we think it's not important to pay attention to. But it is. It's important to establish the continuity of the awareness. What you're experiencing, not so important. Being aware of it, very important. We'll be speaking more about establishing mindfulness, mindful awareness, and sustaining the continuity of it in the coming days. But I hope this identifying some of the right ways of thinking about practice will be supportive uh, of your efforts. So let's take a moment and sit quietly. Let the words quiet down. Cultivating stable awareness of all experience is training in wisdom that reveals liberating insight into the nature of reality. We see that everything that appears, including ourselves, is simply the natural display of impersonal conditions giving rise to their lawful effect. When the mind is supported by skillful view and is unclouded by confusion, greed, or negativity, Reality is accurately recognized. This is seeing our world through the eyes of the Dharma and is the foundation for well-being and liberation. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma. So there's... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.